Well, good morning. Coming through there? Great. Well, snow is exciting for some. It is treacherous for others. And as, as Luke was asking who was excited, I thought there's something else that we can be celebratory for this weekend. The Riders won a game. That was exciting, hey? <laughs> when I saw that score against Toronto, I thought, there are some people in the church who would be really happy about that. So, <laughs> well, welcome. Glad you could join us here this morning as we continue walking through uh, John chapter 15 through 17, examining some of the great themes of the Christian faith. Today, as was mentioned, we have the opportunity to focus upon the Holy Spirit that Jesus promised to send to us to be with us, to be in us, and to help us. Now, most Christians can probably give you a pretty quick and pretty accurate description of who God is. They can probably give you some understanding of who Jesus is and why that makes a difference in their lives. But what about the Holy Spirit? No, this, this part of the Trinity can be a little more difficult to explain. Is he our conscience? Is the Holy Spirit those, those goosebumps you get when you hear a worship song that you really like? Or is he something much, much more? Now as you ponder that question, I invite you to consider the following. He descends like a dove and baptizes fire. He comforts, guides, and corrects. He is the spirit of life, the essence of truth, the voice of God. And when you are alone, lost, and afraid, He will carry you home. Over and over again, the Bible mentions the Holy Spirit or the Holy Ghost. In fact, the Spirit of God is mentioned over 800 times in Scripture. In fact, the Spirit of God is mentioned in the very second verse of the entire Bible. Genesis chapter 1 verse 2 says, Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. This word that's translated as spirit in the Old Testament is the word ruach. Very literally, it means a wind or a breath, but not a normal breath. It means a violent exhalation, a blast of breath. The Holy Spirit comes with power. In the New Testament, the Greek word that's translated as spirit is the word pneuma. It means a wind, a current of air, a blast of breath. In the Old Testament times, the Spirit of God would actually descend upon people, and then it would often depart. You can read very clearly that the Spirit of God was with Saul, and then would leave Saul. The same with David. When David sinned against God with Bathsheba, he cried out to God, please, don't take your spirit from me. In the New Testament, though, once Jesus left, he sent us his Holy Spirit. And for those who are believers in Christ, the Holy Spirit will never, ever leave us nor forsake us. 
In the New Testament, you can see the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus in the form of the dove. You can see the Holy Spirit falling on the people of God at Pentecost, empowering them to speak in other tongues and do all sorts of miraculous works. You see the Holy Spirit empowering people with spiritual gifts to live a supernatural life in a very natural world. And you see the Holy Spirit giving people the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. So many people live a spirit-less life when God wants you to live a spirit-filled and spirit-powered life. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If you have been in church for any period of time, you probably regularly heard about Father God, about Jesus Christ. But in terms of the Holy Spirit, it kind of depends upon what type of church you went to and, and to what you encountered there. Because often churches end up in one of two ditches on this one. They either end up on the side of overemphasizing where everything is spirit, from the way that they talk and pray to explaining what spirit caused the feedback through the microphone. But in reaction to this, you find that other churches end up on, on the other ditch, on the other side of the road, where they underemphasize the Holy Spirit and only bring him up in, in passing reference. And when that happens, there's a danger that we're going to miss out on the reality of so many of God's promises and so much of the power that truly exists within all believers. Because if the Holy Spirit is equal part in the Trinity, then it certainly deserves some of our attention. Or we're missing out on something. Now in the passage we're going to have a look at today, John chapter 16, verses 5 through 15, we find that this is the final of five times in this section of Scripture that Jesus makes reference to and describes the Holy Spirit that evening. And in this whole time, he's trying to encourage his followers. He's encouraging them by promising that once he left, he would send the Holy Spirit who would never leave them and would never forsake them. And so that all of those, all of us who are identified with Jesus Christ, we are to live these Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered lives as we continue Jesus' work here on this world. So I invite you to follow along as we begin reading and walking through this passage today. And we begin in John chapter 16, in verse 5, where Jesus says to his disciples, Now I am going away to him, now I am going to him who sent me. Yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I go away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he demonstrated what it meant to yield himself and to yield his will to the will of the Father. He knew why he had come. He knew what he had to do. And he knew that his death was just around the corner and that he would be leaving. But this wasn't the first time he had mentioned this. He had mentioned this to his followers previously, but as the date was coming closer, as it became more imminent, his reference to it became more frequent, and now it is within hours of being reality. And considering the nature of the situation he finds himself and the disciples in, and the nature of the conversation that they've had this, so far this evening, he's, it's a little curious to him. He says that no one has asked me where I'm going. But he understands. 
He understands that the grief and this this sense of loss that the disciples were anticipating was, was greatly affecting them. It had an impact upon them. They weren't really able to to find the right words. They weren't really able to ask the right questions. Because while their focus was upon their loss and upon the fear that they had, Jesus' focus was upon the cross and the salvation that it would afford. But as an act of grace, he, he seeks to comfort them. He seeks to reassure his followers when he says to them, you may not understand this. You may not even believe what I'm about to tell you. But this leaving I've been telling you about, it's actually a good thing. This actually is going to benefit you. Because when I leave, the Spirit comes. You see, Jesus knows the plan. He knows the plan. He was was to sacrifice himself upon the cross. And then when, when the price for sin was finally paid, he would return to the Father, having defeated sin and death, having been exalted and glorified. And making it possible that for all of us, if we choose to identify ourselves with him, to receive the free gift of salvation that he makes available to us, that if we would choose that, that we would be made clean. We would be made clean enough and pure enough that the Spirit of God himself could reside in us. He first brought this up a little earlier in his ministry, back in John chapter 7, he, he clearly taught that the saving work of the cross was necessary before the sending of the Spirit. And, and he said this. He said that anyone who is thirsty, who has that spiritual thirst that is just never quenched, whoever is thirsty, let them come to me and drink. Because whoever believes in me, as Scripture said, rivers of living water will flow from them. By this he was referring to the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Because up until that time, the Spirit had not yet been given since Jesus had not yet been glorified. He clearly taught that that the cross had to happen prior to the coming of the Holy Spirit. And so it's good for Jesus to go because it's the means, his path to leaving is the means by which there and our salvation became a reality. But it's also good because following that comes the Spirit. Now, throughout the entire evening, Jesus has referenced this five times. Five times he's made mention of the Holy Spirit and describes the work of the Spirit. And in each case, he will use a word to define him, a Greek word, the Greek word paraclete. Now, paraclete, the best translation of that would refer to, to one who comes alongside of another. One who comes alongside of another. And we still see this in our world today. For example, if you hear the word parachurch, You know, the organization is not the church, but it comes alongside of the church. If you hear the term paralegal, that person is not the attorney, but they come alongside the attorney. And speaking of attorneys, in fact, the most frequent use of this word is in a legal term, which is why in a lot of your versions of Scripture, you will see this word paraclete translated counselor. Not in a therapeutic counselor sense, but more in the the legal representation sense of a counselor or of an advocate. And so as throughout Scripture, it's this idea that we have a spiritual counsel, we have a spiritual defense in matters of life and faith. And three times prior to this particular passage, Jesus has referred to the counselor, to the advocate, to the the Holy Spirit, in a way that he will be with and defend the believers. 
in John chapter 14, verse 17. He says, the world does not know you because it does not know or love God. But you know the Spirit because the Spirit lives with you and in you. In the same chapter, in verse 26, Jesus says that the Spirit, in keeping with Jesus' ministry, will come and will teach and remind us of everything that Jesus has taught. And then in chapter 15, verse 26, it says that amid the hostility of the world in which we will live, that the Spirit will defend us and the Spirit will strengthen our public witness. That we live out. Three great functions of the Holy Spirit that are available to all believers. But as Jesus continues to explain in this passage that we're looking at today, that following his victory over sin and death, the counsel for our defense also becomes the prosecutor of the world. Because in the next verses, he says, when he comes, he will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. About sin, because people do not believe in me. About righteousness, because I'm going to the Father where you will see me no longer. And about judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Now the opening verse of this section presents the Spirit in in that, that prosecuting counsel role as he exposes the world of its sinfulness. And these verses each provide a little further explanation of what that means, what of the case that God has against the world. And walk through these three very quickly. First of all, the Spirit proves the world to be wrong about sin because people do not believe in Jesus. Now, the word used here for proved wrong shows up 17 times in the New Testament and almost always it's done in a manner to expose sin. It's used to expose sin. For example, when John the Baptist rebuked Herod because Herod married his brother's wife, he, re- he rebuked him and this word appears there to prove wrong. And in Paul's command in in the book of 1 Timothy, when Paul commands the rebuke of an elder for his sin, we see this word there as well, exposing sin. And so part of the Spirit's work is to help all people to see themselves as sinners. Not for the purpose of tearing down. Not for the purpose that you can feel just condemned by the weight of that, but for the purpose so that you come to understand the reality you have a need for a Savior. That you come to a point of saying, I need something beyond myself to be free from this. Because unless somebody is told, unless somebody is shown that there is another way, how can they know? How can they know that there's a better way? And God longs for all people to turn from their sin and to repent. But in order for them to do that, first they must become aware of their sinfulness. And in a few weeks we're going to talk more about this when we talk about the subject of holiness. But then the second part here. It says the Spirit proves the world wrong about righteousness because Jesus is going to the Father. Now as you stop and think about this, this may not be perfectly clear. It could be a bit of a confusing statement. How does proving them wrong about righteousness and Jesus leaving, how do those things equate to proving the world wrong? Well, let's begin to examine this by understanding, first of all, the word righteousness. What does the word righteousness mean? It's used in reference to being put right with to acting justly, to acting morally, to to making the right decision. And so in an effort to make things right again, the world has accused and tried Jesus Christ. 
And the world, in an effort to make things right again in their eyes, has determined that Jesus Christ is guilty and that he is deserving of death. But as we know the rest of the story, that the cross was not an instrument of death alone, but an instrument of life. Because Jesus was in fact innocent. And Jesus was in fact glorified and exalted in the end. And when that happens, the world does not stand in righteousness. The world stands in error. It stands in error. But the Spirit does not only prove them wrong about their conclusions of Jesus and about their determination of His guilt and deserving of death, it also proves them wrong because they have been found guilty. Which is why the Spirit also proves them wrong about judgment. Because Jesus is not dead and resigned to a grave. But Jesus is victorious. And Jesus is alive. And He is the rightful judge who sits in heaven. And in summary of all this, the world has therefore been put on notice. The world has been put on notice because their guilt has been exposed and the verdict is certain. And the Holy Spirit acts as the conscience of the world in these matters. But there's a problem. There's a problem in all of this. Because earlier that night, one of the times Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit, back in John chapter 14, verse 17, He said, the world, speaking of the world still, the world cannot accept a spirit because it neither sees him nor knows him. Which draws our attention to the responsibility placed upon us. The responsibility we have, we who are indwelt with the spirit. We whom the spirit is with. We who have the gospel of hope. We who have the good news of Jesus Christ, we are the ones who have the answer to the question, the solution to the problem, and the responsibility to do something with it. Which Jesus would say in some of his final words that he would speak to the disciples following his his resurrection, when he says, when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, when that power comes upon you, you will then be my witnesses. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You see, we not only receive the Holy Spirit to convict us of sin and our need to get back into right relationship with God. We not only receive the Spirit so that we know that we have a need for a Savior. We receive the Holy Spirit so that we also might go forth and show the Spirit to the world. To show God to the world. So that when the weight and the burden of their choices when the weight of having a lack of purpose and self-reliance fails them, when it becomes too much, we will have a path to freedom to explain to them that leads them to Jesus Christ. Thereby carrying on the work that He started in a life that is empowered and Spirit-filled. Because remember these past few weeks as we were talking about this, it is not by our strength and by our power that we do these things. It is by our submission to the will and the leading of God in our lives and placing our complete trust in Him that we become Spirit-filled and Spirit-empowered and by that power we go forth proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this next section, Jesus continues on this same idea. Confirming the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives and the ministry of Jesus Christ that continues in our lives as followers of Him. For he says this to them. He says, I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you in all truth. 
He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I have said the Spirit will receive from me what he makes known to you. Jesus desires to comfort his disciples because he's leading. He also desires to prepare them for the receiving that's about to come. But in his wisdom, he understands that they are maxed out cognitively and emotionally. They are at their capacity for what they can take in at this moment. But again, he reminds them, you are not alone. I will not abandon you. Because yes, I am leaving, but the spirit of truth will come and he will guide you. And there's two ways that are pointed out here that the guiding happens. First, it's stressed that the spirit will come and help them to recall everything that they have experienced with Jesus. All of the teachings, the parables, the miracles, the the times they sat around the campfire and just talked as guys in the evening, all of these things they encountered with him, the Spirit will be brought back to their memories. It will be just like Jesus was there with them as they recount and recall these accounts that they had. But secondly, the Spirit also will provide present revelation. He will help them to understand these principles, understand these teachings, and to apply them within the contemporary issues that they would face. And we see this in a couple of ways. It's quite fascinating. One, we see the historical Jesus in his ministry alongside ongoing revelation of the Spirit, most immediately in their ability to finally come to understand the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember, in that moment, as Jesus was sharing with them, he said, I have so much more to tell you, but I can't because you can't bear it. But then we see later on in the Gospels, especially in John, he inserts comments where it was not until afterwards that they understood. We see the Spirit continues the work following those moments. And he gave them the ability to preach in power, as we see throughout the book of Acts, which was studied here throughout the summertime. But we also see the Spirit being able to help recall these things, continue the revelation and see fulfillment of these verses as the Spirit-led process of writing what we've come to know as the New Testament took place, which was a Spirit-enabled, Spirit-empowered process. And that same thing is available to us today. You see, the Spirit helps us to recall the messages. The Spirit helps us to recall the commands that Jesus left for us and that were written down in the Holy Scriptures. And it helps us to take those principles and apply them to contemporary issues that were not known at that point. Just as the disciples did not understand and could not apply those principles to the cross and the resurrection until after the fact, so too there are challenges in today's world. There are cultural issues. There are technological advancements. There are moral issues that we need to make decisions upon. And the Holy Spirit exists within us in this present day to help guide and to discern how the truth and the principles of Scripture can apply to these things. So what can we take from these promises? What can we take from these promises of the Holy Spirit that will make a difference for us in our lives, in our homes, and in our church? What do we learn from this? In this passage, we see that the disciples, just like us, lived in a world without Jesus in human form, walking with them and teaching and guiding them. And as the passage points out, though, they were not left alone, and neither are we. They were not abandoned and neither were we because the advocate was there to come alongside of them. Now throughout John's gospel, there are seven times that he uses these these I am statements. 
Many of them you'll be familiar with. When Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. He even said earlier this particular evening, I am the truth. And then shortly followed up by calling the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. But if I may be permitted to to paraphrase a verse and maybe add one more statement that Jesus is speaking of here. When he says, I have to go away to the Father. But in my departing, I am with you in spirit. The I am is with you in spirit. Have you ever heard somebody say that before? I'm with you in spirit. Typically when they do, they they mean that even though I can't be there physically in person, I wish you well. I'm sending thoughts and prayers your way. You'll see Facebook comments to that extent quite often. Sending prayers. I'm with you in spirit. And we say these things, but Jesus' words are not just a comforting saying. They are proclaiming reality. That he is with us in spirit. That every believer of Jesus Christ has Jesus in spirit in them. And now there's many ways that the Spirit can work within us to help us to produce and to grow as we change into the image of Christ. And they quite often happen through three words, three C words that I'll reference today. Through conviction, through counsel, and through comfort. And these are things that are not truly available to us in the same manner apart from the Spirit. Now there's a mystery to the Holy Spirit. We're never going to fully demystify the Holy Spirit. But for the time we have remaining today, I want to unpack a couple of common ways that people have experienced the Holy Spirit's conviction, counsel, and comfort. And hopefully by doing so, give you a sense of reality and presence of the Spirit in your life. So let's begin with this word that a lot of us don't quite often like, and I understand why, the word conviction. Have you ever, have you ever had like an involuntary thought or a burden that just constantly is on your mind and you just can't shake it? It's like the spirit is camping out in your brain and it just overwhelms you with the sense that you need to do something or stop doing something. You ever had that before? Sometimes we'll go, well, it's my conscience that's talking to me. Okay? Other times people will say that they're feeling convicted. The spirit is giving a feeling of conviction. Well, regardless of what label we attach to it, this can be an indication where the spirit within you is trying to guide you to or away from something. If there's a a person you need to forgive, that feeling, that burden doesn't go away until you seek out that person and make it right. If you're participating in something that you know is a sinful activity or even just have a hint and inkling that it might be sinful, there's this nagging knowledge in your mind that this isn't right. Go the other way. Go no further. Or if you're trying to write a sermon and the Blue Jays are playing in the playoff games. Man, that was a conviction yesterday. (laughs) You got to get the sermon done, right? There's that nagging thought, that presence in your mind that until you start doing something or stop doing something as the Spirit guides you, there's that burden of conviction that's there. This is one very real way that the Spirit can be, for lack of a better term, a conscience to us. But what about this idea of counsel? How can he be a counsel to us? Well, there's a myriad of ways that this can happen. Uh, More than I could possibly uncover right now, but there's a few that that I'll just share with you. You know, sometimes there's this immediate quickening of your spirit when you read something or when you hear something. It could be a 
uh, like a, you feel like a sermon is just speaking directly to you. Or you may feel like the words of a song on the radio just address a hurt or a need so, so keenly that's being felt in your life right now. And there's just this quickening of the Spirit within you that says, this is for you. And you can feel this deep desire or yearning to know more, to, to participate or to move into action to discover more. Sometimes this can be the counsel that we are seeking. Other times, maybe you're praying or thinking about a situation or a challenge, or if a friend has come to you and asking for some help and some, some support from a, a Christian brother or sister, and as you're considering and reflecting upon this, it just out of nowhere, a verse or a passage of Scripture will just come into your mind. One that you may think, man, I read that like six months ago. I didn't even know I re- remembered that. This happened for me just uh, about a, a month ago in particular when there was a, a person who was seeking some counsel from me and as I was driving to Starbucks to meet them, I was praying about the situation and, and I had this strong impression. I didn't even know the whole story yet. I, I knew the kind of the headline, but not the whole story. And as I was praying about it, this, this, this thought just came to mind that he needs to be true to himself and to me. God speaking of choosing that direction. As the story unpacked, it turned out that the person looking for a choice between, you know, do I follow option A or do I follow option B? And we'll, one of them from an outside perspective, it's much clear, more clearly the proper way to go in light of those words. And in hindsight, don't know if it's going to work out, but when they come to you afterwards and say, that was the right word for the right time. That's not of me. That's of the Spirit. That brings these things, whether they be verses or thoughts, to mind. But not only does it give us confidence that we can counsel in the power of the Spirit, for those of us who have the Spirit, but also should be a reminder to us that we need to be in the Word of God so that the Spirit has something to work with. Because we don't just learn these verses by osmosis. We have to actively engage and participate in the reading, in the meditating, and hopefully in the memorization of passages so that the Spirit has that raw material to work with to bring back to prompt you in those moments. But then a third one, quickly, and this is a common one that I encounter as a pastor, is when somebody comes and says, I I just don't know what God's will is for me in a situation. I don't know if this is the school I should go to. I don't know if this is the work I should take. I don't know if this is the position I should allow myself to be in. What is the Spirit's will in this? And quite often I will tell people to seek out three things. Three things to examine that are all Spirit-related. Number one, I ask them to pray about it. What does, what does the Spirit tell your heart? What are the passions that God has given you tell you? What direction do they possibly lead you in? Because if the tri- Spirit is trying to guide you somewhere, I believe He will impress it upon you. But that in itself is not often enough because sometimes we get ideas of ourselves or sometimes we have spicy pepperoni and we don't know which way it's going. So we need to go to steps beyond that to determine if this is truly of the Spirit or if it's of us. And so the second thing I ask them is after they've prayed and examined themselves, their hearts, their passions, their their desires, to then seek out other godly people, to ask other godly people to pray with them, to talk with them, to say, do you see this in my life? Do you see this being something that, that you believe God may be calling me to? And if the same Spirit that resides within me resides within them and resides within you, then we have the same Spirit hopefully guiding us to the same point. And so seeking out other godly people is part of that as well. But then the third aspect is fruit. Is when you have engaged in this opportunity in the past, when you have taken steps in that direction, was it a flop? 
Or were there good outcomes from it? As you walked in that direction, was there evidence that the Spirit wants to bless this? That this is something that that God has not just put upon your heart. It's not just something He's revealed to other people, but there's actually evidence that He wants to bless and have you continue in this direction. So a couple of ways that His counsel that can happen within our lives. And then finally, this idea of comfort. That the Spirit offers comfort to us. Because we will all go through times of sorrow and all go through times of struggle. And it's so good that we can reach out to one another. That we have a body of believers here that can support and encourage one another. But we can also reach out to God. His Spirit who is with us in those rough times. And the best way to understand this, I think, and we can probably all relate to this at some point in our lives, is that when the world seems to be falling apart around us, when others are stressed and fearful, for some reason that you can't quite put your finger on, for some reason that you can't fully understand cognitively, you have a sense of security. You have a sense that you are firmly fixed upon a strong foundation. And that even though you will need to walk through that difficult night, that storm, there will be a strong wind, there will be rains that pelt your face, you have confidence that you will emerge. You do not allow the storm to envelop you and sweep over you, but you have confidence that you will make it through. Paul talks about this in probably one of the most common verses in this sense when he says in Philippians chapter 4, Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And in the midst of those difficult moments, in the midst of those challenges, he then says that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, that peace of God, that peace that comes from God and makes no worldly sense, that peace of God will guard your heart and your mind in Jesus Christ. This is part of the reality of the Spirit that lives within us. And the comfort that's available to us. Now by no means is this an exhaustive list. There are so many more things we could talk about and add to this list as far as how the Spirit exists and guides us. But I hope that this will provide you with some sense of direction. Provide you with some sense of evidence as well of the Spirit's presence and desire to provide that guidance to you through the form of conviction and counsel and comfort. And I pray that it will also serve as a reminder that the I Am, the great I Am, is with you in spirit as you continue the work of Jesus in this world. So to close here today, I'd actually like to invite the worship team if they come back up on the platform. But I invite you to consider three questions to help you determine what next steps may look like in your life as you experience a spirit-filled life. First of all, it begins here. Have you accepted the gift of salvation that is made possible by Jesus Christ? Have you believed and received You see, this is where it starts. That those who have accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and as Savior, they have that Spirit of God within them who will never leave them and will never forsake them. Those who have not made that profession of faith, they don't. But they may feel the Spirit's convicting and the Spirit's leading to say, you need to take that next step. The Bible promises that to all those who believe in His name, they become children of God with all the rights and privileges that go with that title. The right to a relationship with God. 
a position of eternal confidence in the forgiveness made possible through Jesus Christ in the indwelling power of the Spirit. And if you are here today and there is a prompting and a quickening in your heart that you need to discover more of Jesus Christ, that you need to receive that Spirit, then I challenge you to not push that thought away, to not allow that feeling to slip away, but to embrace it. And to take that next step and to see what it might look like for that profession of faith. Maybe you have received and you're sensing an urging to deal with something in your life as well. What would that next step look like? Are you feeling that conviction? An area of your life where there's a stronghold. Some part of your life where you are protecting it because you're fearful what would happen if the secret got out. Is there an area where there needs to be surrender? Surrender to the help and the support that I believe you can find in this warm body of Christ here but also that you will find in Jesus Christ. As we talked last week, the choice is all of ours. We each have a choice. We, as Paul said, we can either walk by the Spirit or we can gratify the desires of the flesh. But the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They are in conflict with each other. And so if you find yourself in that moment of conviction, do not be surprised because they are in conflict with each other. And let us help you to choose to walk according to the Spirit. And to respond to that conviction. And then finally, counsel. Are you hearing God's Spirit impressing upon you a direction, a step He wants you to take in your life? I'm simply going to ask you, what is keeping you from taking that step? I felt that very keenly in my own call to ministry. Many of you have heard my story. I have never questioned it for a single day, but I did not follow it for about a decade in my life. And that decade was filled with restlessness and frustration and self-reliance that led me nowhere. But it was not until I finally submitted myself to the will of God when I finally said yes to that quiet, constant voice and chose to follow Him. It was not until I stepped out in faith in that manner that I experienced the greatest adventure that He has ever led me on with incredible fulfillment and peace. God desires for us to live these Spirit-filled, Spirit-empowered lives and thereby fulfill His purpose for us in creation and to bring us to a place where we can glorify Him as we respond to the Spirit's conviction, counsel, 